The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5. And this morning we'll complete the Beatitudes, reading verses 10 to 12. Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Well, let's give our attention then to God's holy word. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, our need for you and the working of the eternal spirit is absolute. Surely we can have no blessedness from you unless you see fit to bless us. So we plead with you, almighty God, Meet us now through your words. Speak to us. Uh, give me words to speak. Sustain our minds and our bodies that we all might worship you and bow before you now. We plead with you, Father in heaven, speak to us that our faith might be strengthened and we, your people, might learn to trust you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, have you ever wondered why the last beatitude deals with the issue of persecution? It's quite different to the other beatitudes, isn't it? It's different in structure, uh, really different uh, in uh, its ethos as well. Why does the last beatitude here speak to us in a fairly lengthy manner of the issue of persecution? Well, our Lord has a logic here in his preaching And the logic is simply this, if the Christian is living as he or she should, beatitudinal living, then persecution is a natural consequence of Christian living. Persecution is a natural consequence of Christian living. And that's a rather sobering thought, is it not? That if we are living in a Christ-like fashion, persecution will surely find us at some point. But, as with the other Beatitudes, there is still a remarkable blessing attached to this concept of persecution. It's a remarkable blessing of the kingdom of heaven. Because in the hands of the sovereign God, even persecution of the saint serves his glorious purposes. Persecution serves the purposes of God. And so we ought to be ready for persecution. We ought to expect such. The Christian ought to realize that they are one who is marked out from the world and by the world. And yet there is a blessing, an eternal, glorious, victorious kingdom. Persecution is the subject of the last beatitude. I want to look at the context a little bit in our first point, the context of the beatitude, very briefly. Then we're going to look at persecution for righteousness' sake. And then thirdly, the reward for 
persecution or the reward for the persecuted. First, the context, the context of the beatitude. We've noted already that this beatitude is slightly different to the other beatitudes. There appear to be two beatitudes dealing with persecution, verse 10 and then verse 11 and 12. I would suggest to you really that to be taken as one beatitude, verse 11 and 12, exegetes or explains the beatitude of verse 10. That in itself is significant because no other beatitude has an explaining note attached to it. And there very much is explanation here. We see in verse 10, the start of it is the statement, blessed are those who are persecuted. Then there's the reward. Verse 11 is the statement of blessing once again. And verse 12 is the explanation of the reward. And we notice there is further explanation added to verse 12. Notice this. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for, as an explanatory note, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, our Lord in his preaching to the Jews and to us takes more time to fully explain this beatitude than any other beatitude. Even a cursory glance at the text before you, you will see that each beatitude, verses 3 to 9, is rather simple in its structure. This one is different, and it's different for a reason. Our Lord wants us to understand there is a reality, even, I might say, an expectation that the Christian will face persecution. And he attaches a beatitude, a blessedness to it, so that we will understand that that persecution does not happen in a vacuum, but in a greater context. And the greater context is really uh, the doctrine that underpins all the beatitudes. The greater context is the doctrine of union with our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, the beatitudes most certainly speak of the Christian, but first they speak of the Christ. They speak of the Christ as it was for the king of the kingdom. Remember back in chapter 4, verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As it was for the king, so it must be also for the citizens of the kingdom. As our Lord faced persecution, so will we. Now, that clearly doesn't mean that every day of our lives we are perpetually facing dire persecution on account of Christ. No, the providence of God oftentimes protects us from such. But Christ here, friends, is teaching us a general truth for all ages and for all Christians. That if we act in a Christ-like fashion, we ought to expect the persecution of the world. So it was for our Lord Jesus. In the most full fashion, we could say, the one who lived uh, to the utmost for the sake of righteousness, yet was also punished in the greatest possible way, persecuted in the greatest possible way for his righteousness. That is to say, friends, we're seeing a pattern once again of what happens to our Lord then happens also to his brethren, the doctrine of union with Christ. We're reminded he taught us a servant is not greater than his master. As it was for the king, so must it also be for 
his people. So let's examine that idea of union with Christ through this lens, the lens of persecution for the sake of righteousness. That's our second heading this morning. Persecution for the sake of righteousness. We know, do we not, the reality of suffering for the gospel is an indisputable reality throughout the ages of mankind. It has ever been thus. Uh, Adam and Eve and the serpent. Cain and Abel. David with the Philistines. David with Saul. We're even told here in verse 12, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Persecution has been a universal reality for God's people throughout the ages. And it's a principle which is particularly true for the apostles of Christ listening here and all Christians, all Christians. Uh, It's certainly the reality that spoke to our Lord's life. Uh, No sooner was he born, we read in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13, uh, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Even at his birth, Christ was faced with this reality. We see it again replicated in the apostles in the book of Acts. We read in the early chapters, they rejoiced to be counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. They rejoiced to be counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. Now think about the apostles, the disciples. That's actually a remarkable statement about the disciples in Acts. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. Because throughout Christ's earthly ministry... They were wholly resistant to his predictions of his own suffering and their suffering. It's ironic, isn't it? Uh, When Peter was faced with the opportunity, he took forth a sword to fight for Christ. He then denied Christ. And yet here in Acts we read they rejoiced because they were found worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. What had happened to them? The Spirit had worked in them, of course. The Spirit had worked mightily in them. Uh, opening their eyes to the depths and the profound nature of their union with their Lord. They were united to him in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, even his earthly experience of persecution. They began more fully to understand their union with Christ. And that's really the heart of beatitudinal living. It is faith, dear friends, that unites us to Christ. And that calls us into a union with him, both in suffering and in glory. And the doctrine of union with Christ assures us that while we are glorified like our Lord, we must also suffer like our Lord. Friends, when a person believes in the Lord Jesus Christ... They become inseparably bound or united to the Lord Jesus Christ. They become inseparably bound or united to Christ. John Murray wrote on this, he said, The spiritual man, he means the Christian, the Christian is the person who is indwelt and controlled by the Holy Spirit. When we say that union with Christ is spiritual, we mean, first of all, that the bond of this union is the Holy Spirit himself. For by one spirit, 
We are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, bond or free, and have been made all to drink into one spirit. That is to say, friends, by faith and by the spirit, we are united to Christ. That's why scripture can speak in this way. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's why scripture can say we are in Christ, he in us and we in him. That's why Paul can say in Colossians 1.24, an astonishing statement, Colossians 1.24, I fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. That's an astonishing statement. And there's no other way to understand it except through the lens of union with Christ. The persecution that Paul faced was the persecution that Christ faced. Because Christ and his people are so closely associated. They are united together. Paul says, I fill up my present and future sufferings, fill up what's lacking in our Lord. Not that, of course, there's any ontological lack in Christ. But he's saying this, that Christ in heaven is not yet united eternally, in a sense, in his immediate presence with his people. As they suffer, he also enters into that suffering. The Apostle Peter had much to say about persecution for the sake of Christ in his epistle. First Peter 4 and verse 12. Listen to this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange had happened to you. But rejoice. In so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We enter into Christ's sufferings. We have to. If we're united to him by faith, we share not only the glory, we share the suffering as well. We share the persecution that he entered into. He had it peculiarly, we have it more generally. And yet, just as we are united to Christ, when we are persecuted, if we're sincere Christians, we are also persecuted for the same reason as our Lord was persecuted. Blessed are they, blessed are the, sorry, are those who are persecuted, what? For righteousness' sake. For righteousness' sake. The Christian, the sincere Christian, will manifest the same traits as his Savior. Imperfectly, but he or she will manifest the same trait. When it comes to persecution, what is that trait? It's righteousness. It's righteousness. Verse 10 speaks for righteousness' sake. Verse 11 speaks of on my account, persecuted for righteousness' sake, persecuted on my account the two phrases are synonymous they explain each other and yet peter again reminds us does he not in first peter 4:15 and in first peter 2:20 uh, that we must suffer not for our own sin or stupidity but for righteousness sake he says in first peter 4:15 but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler he speaks in 1 Peter 2.20, For what credit is it if, when you sin, you are beaten for it and endure it? 
There's no real blessing or grace attached to enduring something that you deserve. I mean, there's some, of course, but it's not the blessing of which our Lord speaks here. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Friends, the world practices unrighteousness. The Christian must practice righteousness. We must be categorically different from the world. Sinclair Ferguson wrote on this dynamic, Real loyalty to Christ creates friction in the hearts of those who pay him only lip service, or indeed those who pay him no service at all. Loyalty to Christ arouses their consciences and leaves them with only one of two alternatives. Follow Christ or silence him. Often their only way of silencing him is to silence his servants. Persecution for righteousness' sake. That's why the world seeks to discredit Christians. That's why the world seeks to persecute Christians, ultimately in an attempt to silence the claims of King Jesus. They will silence God or attempt to. They will silence Christ. They will try and silence Christians at any cost. Because Christians who are worth their salt and light, as it were, remind the unbeliever of their own unrighteousness. Is this not a testimony to the deep wickedness and corruption of the heart of natural man? That the only actual message, the gospel, righteousness, that can actually deal with their greatest need, which is sin... They attempt to silence it in their own lives. Isn't that a testimony to the the wickedness and corruptness of the natural heart? Don't let us ever forget, as Paul would say elsewhere, and such were some of you. All of us were that way, natively. That's why the world will ultimately seek to persecute Christians, because they represent the claims of Christ to the world. That's why they'll revile you. They'll spew all manner of vitriol against the Christian. They'll label you as a bigot, a homophobe, a fundamentalist. They'll persecute you. They'll ignore you. They'll deny you progress in the workplace. They'll stifle opportunities. They'll utter all kinds of evil falsely against you. They'll call you names. They'll lie. They'll deceive. They'll destroy your reputation. And the sad reality is we even find this behavior in the church of Christ, amongst Christians. It's a terrible fact that many Christians are actually persecuted by those who call themselves Christians. And yet Peter says to us, don't be surprised when this happens. Don't be surprised. As if something strange is happening to you. The biblical record is very clear, friends. The world will tolerate everything but not Christianity. It will tolerate everything but not Christianity. The biblical record on persecution is clear. Some were tortured, Hebrews 11.35, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. 
Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. That's the biblical record. History likewise speaks of the same reality for Christians. John Fox wrote his book of martyrs. If you've never read it, read it. It'll open your eyes to the horrors that have continued to happen against Christians throughout the world. The record of scripture and the record of history is very clear. There is an indisputable and unbroken record of hatred against Christ and against the Christian throughout this world. But I wonder if in our comfort and the blessedness of the providence of God, whether we've lost sight of perhaps some of these realities It's another indisputable truth. God protects the church in particular ways at particular times. But we would have to acknowledge both the church at large and society in this country and in most Western democracies is now in full-blown rebellion against God. What do we expect is going to happen to the church? When half the church has sold itself out, sold its soul to Satan to look respectable in the eyes of the world. What's going to happen? An increase in persecution of the Christian. Parts of the church deny the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, miracles, the afterlife. Not to mention all manner of moral issues. Yes, the church has by and large sold itself out. We ought to expect such persecution that the saints of the past have seen. Some of us are surprised when we receive just a little bit of pushback from the world. We're surprised when we see the world behaving like the world. I mean, friends, what do you expect? (laughs) It's the world. It's the world behaving as it only can, as the world. I wonder why we're surprised when this happens. Is it perhaps because we've not understood the nature of the world, the nature of evil, of Satan, of sin, and and the profound hatred that the natural man has of Christ? Have we not understood that? Or perhaps we've not understood the nature of Active, lively, obvious, uncompromised Christian living. I think these Beatitudes, all of them, especially this one, are a call to each one of us to think carefully of the manner of our walk. We're going to hear it next week about salt and light. Are we salt and light? The reason why verse 13 to 15, 16 comes after verses 2 to 12 is because that's what beatitudinal living is like, salt and light. Salt and light, preservative and an illuminator. Are we living in such a way, dear friends? Are you living in such a way, perhaps in your families, 
your neighborhoods, your workplaces, those places where you rub shoulders with the world? Are we living as salt and light? And as we do so, are we expecting then to be persecuted? I think we should. I think we should. We should expect to be persecuted because as they hated our master, they will hate his followers. And we ought to expect to share in his suffering, in his persecution. The servant is not greater than the master. But there is also a profound blessing attached to this kind of persecution. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when others revile you. Blessed. Another blessing poured out upon God's children. The blessing is what? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you notice we've returned now to the first beatitude in terms of blessing? The first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven really here is the inheritance of the saints. It's the inheritance of Christ. It's shorthand for the reign and rule of King Jesus, the King of Kings. And we might immediately, when we hear of the kingdom of heaven, set our sights upon eternity, upon the blessedness of, of the glorified state. Revelation 21, Revelation 22, the new heavens, the new earth, where all pain and suffering and tears have passed away, and Christ's unadulterated rule is known by all who dwell with him. That's certainly in mind here, friends. There will be that land of pure delight where saints immortal reign, where Christ reigns and rules over all, the land of perfection, of no sorrow and no death. That will happen. But the tense of this blessing is not future. It's not future. It's not theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. It's present. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The reward for those who suffer for the sake of Christ on account of Christ is a present kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Those who suffer for the sake of Christ presently, now, possess that great and glorious and eternal kingdom and the promise is this the blessing is this knowing more and more of the kingdom of christ knowing more of his love knowing more of his delight in you knowing more of his care and protection over you his ordering of all things in your life that all things must work for your good it is now to know the reign of Christ in your life, granting you greater measures of the Spirit's work, conforming you to the King, to Christ himself. It's having your present desires and affections changed, your will changed, your behavior altered. To have the kingdom of heaven is a present reality. And it is, dear friends, to enter into a full and blessed assurance that you are his and he is yours. Friends, the kingdom of heaven is simply this, life 
under King Jesus. Life under the headship of Christ. Life under his governance. To have it eternally, friends, is to have it now. So, friends, we come, in a sense, to the end of the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. The manifesto of kingdom life. Here is the manifesto of kingdom character. Poverty in spirit. Mourning over sin. Meekness before God and before man. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. uh, Being merciful to others. Being pure and undivided in heart. Being a peacemaker and being persecuted are the traits of kingdom citizens. These are the traits we ought to be aspiring to in our lives. Not greatness, not a name, not fame or our own agenda, but life under the king. We're called then, friends, to examine ourselves. Are these graces part of your lives? Are these graces part of your lives? Because if, friends, they're absent from your life, in a whole sense, you're outside of Christ. You're not in him. You don't have faith. And while you may get away by seeing the church persecuted in this age, there's going to come a time where you'll come face to face with King Jesus on the day of judgment, and you'll be asked to give an account for all your deeds and why you did not receive him. It's a call to anyone here today without faith in Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today. Yes, you'll be persecuted for it. Oh, but the kingdom of heaven will be yours. And for the Christian here today, the sincere one pursuing Christ. Friends, our Lord says, expect persecution. That's not a bad day when we're persecuted. It's the day of blessing. It's the day of blessing to be part of that never-ending, unbroken, victorious, blessed kingdom. Oh, there's nothing quite like that, dear friends. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Almighty God, we ask that your hand will be upon us this day for good, that we will be those, Lord God, who hear your word, do not sit over in judgment, but rather receive it, work in each of our hearts, so how we need it, Lord God. Be merciful unto us. May our trust in you be renewed this day, strengthened and fortified, so that we might go and live in that manner to which you have called us to live serving you as we go out. Be pleased to bless the word now, and Lord, bless the supper as we come to it now, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.